Uh, if you brought your Bible, we will be in the book of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at the whole book. Uh, that's verses 1 through 18. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture should be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. <clears throat> and if you are joining us online, uh, you should be able to see that on whatever device you're watching. And it's Revelation 13 verses 1 through 18. Uh, we're going to divide them in half and kind of handle them in two different sections, uh, but that is where we will be this morning. If you can remember your World War II history, uh, you remember, you don't have to remember it very deeply to remember how it ended. Uh, it ended in the Pacific Theater uh, with us dropping two of the, uh, not two of the most, two, the two most devastating weapons ever used in warfare uh, as we dropped the atomic bombs uh, in Japan. Uh, that is what finally put an end uh, to the war. We had already closed out the European front at that point, uh, and that ended the, specific, the Pacific side of the war uh, and finally brought World War II uh, to an end. Um, it wasn't that long after that, though, that we and the Japanese had fairly good relations. Uh, I, grew, I was born in 1983, and uh, that's just you know 40 years, one generation after World War II. Uh, and I don't ever remember a time in my own particular life uh, where there was any sort of conflict or even any sort of like a highly stressful situation uh, with our Japanese brothers and sisters. Uh, it always seemed to be a positive relationship between the two countries. And one might wonder if one was surveying history, how in the world that would be the case. Uh, not only did we defeat them, but we did so in a very brutal manner at the end, uh, in, a, in a brand new way. I, I don't even think we knew how devastating the bombs and the after effects of the bombs would be uh, when we dropped them. And so you would wonder, how is it not constant resentment? And sure, I'm sure there's still some of that, even today, uh, in the Japanese mindset uh, of resenting uh, what the Americans did. Uh, but to a large degree, the Japanese seem to have adopted, in many ways, uh, a Western mindset, uh, much more so than they did before the war, at least, uh, developing a, a very capitalistic society uh, and in some ways doing the things that made us who we are even better than we currently are uh, and, and, and kind of exporting their own brand of capitalism around the world uh, in, in production and all the things that they did in the years after the war. Again, one might wonder why. You would think that in a, in, in a similar circumstance that any, 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 anybody else would, again, be resentful of the power that did to them what we did to them, uh, to never be anything like them, uh, to put them, us up as the example of this is what we will never become. But there does seem to be, again, uh, a decision made in Japanese leadership at some point to where they decided, okay, the old adage goes, if you can't beat them, join them, right? There's something about these Americans. There's something about them that allowed them to rise to the point of power and prevalence in the world where they were able to do what they were able to do. Perhaps we can copy them in some ways. And we see that play out over the course of history. And it's resulted in what is a pretty positive relationship today, considering uh, some of our icier relationships with other people in similar parts of the world. And so uh, maybe there's some of that desire to be like us in some ways and even uh, better at being us in some ways than we are that we see in the Japanese mindset. It goes to another cliche, and that is the sincerest form of flattery is imitation, right? Or imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I love watching a good impersonator. 
Uh, I love watching, you know, there's a few people that are just really, really, really good at it and can pull off people from all different kinds of pop culture where immediately you know who they're talking about. One I was thinking of recently uh, with uh, a loss in the sports world. Many of you know John Madden, the late, great John Madden, just passed away recently. Uh, and a guy named Frank Caliendo, who's been on, I think, Fox with Fox Network forever, uh, has always done this perfect impression of Madden. And to listen to that, you can imagine listening to John Madden. I can remember him, uh, you know, sitting in the booth and listening to him announce the Cowboys game. And, and you're brought back to that moment because of such a good impersonation. But you also know that imitation, when it's done poorly, uh, is not flattery at all, but it's annoying as heck. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, if somebody does a really bad impression, you just kind of sit there with that look on your face, like, I don't even know who you are. Or if you have children uh, at home and they copy one another, you know, at first it's cute, uh, but then after the first 10, 15 seconds, it gets really annoying really fast. Uh, and if you were the older sibling that was copied by your younger siblings, uh, you know that imitation doesn't always feel like the sincerest form of flattery. As a matter of fact, sometimes it feels like the opposite of it. Uh, it feels like mockery. What we see in Revelation 13 Revelation as a whole, and really throughout Scripture and in the world itself, one thing we see about the forces of evil, and Satan in particular, is that they have a knack for wanting to imitate what is good, for wanting to appear Christian, for wanting to appear good, for wanting to appear positive and noteworthy, worthy of being followed like we would follow Christ. It is one of, I believe, in our world today, Satan's favorite ways of working is to disguise himself as an angel of light, to disguise himself as something positive when in reality it is something far from that. One of Satan's greatest weapons in his fight to destroy the church is pretending to be God or pretending to be of God. We see over and over again in scriptures, in, in scripture from Jesus and the gospels to all the, just about all of the epistle writers, a warning about false teachers, a warning to be on guard against false teaching and against lies from Satan that appear good on the surface, but underneath are full of lies and, 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 and misinformation. And what we see in Revelation 13 is we finally jump back into our series the revelation of Jesus Christ, is we're going to see the ultimate example of that. So much so that we nickname the people that are one individual that shows up in this chapter, the Antichrist, one who appears to be like Christ, but is most certainly not. A poor imitation that leads people away from the truth and not towards the truth. This is going to be a passage that is going to have a lot of symbolism that is familiar just in our pop culture, from the number 666 to the idea of the Antichrist. But I hope that you see beyond being something that is incredibly important for the last generation on earth, whenever that is, this is an incredibly important passage for that generation. It is also important for every other generation that has ever existed on earth and every generation that will exist until the end comes, whether that's next week or hundreds of years from now or thousands of years from now, whatever it might be, this word is important because the spirit of this antichrist, the spirit of false teaching has been, is now, and will always be with the church and with the world until Christ comes again. And so we must always be on our guard in that regard. And that's how we're going to approach Revelation 13 this morning. But before we jump in, let's pray together once again. 
Father, once again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be here with our brothers and sisters. God, we thank you for the things we take for granted, like a warm room, a warm car ride to church this morning. God, we pray even a prayer of thanksgiving for those non-physical things we take for granted, like your spirit here with us, your very presence, to interpret the truth of your perfect word for us in a way that we might not only learn from it in this moment, but be transformed through encountering you in your truth, in your word. And God, that's what I ask this morning. God, that you would remove distraction from our minds and our hearts. And God, that you would speak through your word as you always do in such a way that you literally change us. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm going to kind of break this into two chunks. We're going to start in Revelation 13, 1 through 10. But before we do that, it would be, I think, imprudent of me not to remind you a little bit about what we talked about a couple of months ago now uh, at the end of Revelation 12. Um, Or the last time we were together in this series, we talked about Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 is an extended story uh, that's uh, uh, kind of a metaphor for the gospel. Uh, It is a story of this dragon pursuing a woman who is about to give birth, the dragon representing Satan, uh, the woman and the child that she bears representing Jesus and his church, uh, and God working through them, uh, on how Satan seeks to devour the child, rushing after him, trying to do everything he can to get his hands on the child, his hands on the woman, and to, to, to wreak havoc, to bring destruction upon them. But God delivers them over and over again. God protects them. Uh, and then we see at the end of Revelation chapter 12 that Satan is furious. The dragon is furious. He is angry with the woman. He vows to make warfare against her offspring, the offspring of the child that she bore, which would, of course, be the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we end in Revelation 12 with the dragon standing on the edge of, the, of, of, of a shore, looking out into the sea telling us that something is coming from the sea, and we see that which comes uh, here in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth were like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call 
for the endurance and faith of the saints. We see in this first half of chapter 13, a beast arise from the sea. If you had like a, a Hebrew history class when you were younger, uh, if you had the stories told to you from, uh, from a Hebrew or a Jew, you would have been told stories like the story of Job. Uh, and you would have been told some other kind of mythology stories that existed in their mindset. And one of the things that was kind of common in the mindset of an ancient Near Eastern, and we see it come up in the book of Job, that's why I mentioned it, is that the sea was this place of mystery. The sea was this place of disorder and chaos and great evil. It was to be avoided at, at basically all costs. It's one of the reasons why for a Hebrew that was hearing the story of Jonah for the first time, it would have been rather so striking that Jonah actually was so resistant to what God wanted to do that he was willing to run into the sea despite its known darkness, despite its reputation. It's one of, this shows just how far Jonah was willing to go to get away from what God wanted him to do in Nineveh. But it's also, it's just, again, the sea is just known as this place of great mystery. And there was even creatures that supposedly lived there. One in particular called the Leviathan. And the Leviathan is talked about in Job chapter 41. Uh, Job chapter 41 is towards the end of Job when God is basically asking Job a ton of questions. Because Job has been asking God all kinds of questions during the book. And God finally says to Job, okay, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I told the lightning where to fall and the, the, the storm? houses of snow and where were you when I defeated the Leviathan and the behemoth these great creatures whether or not they actually existed or they were just mythological within the Hebrew mind uh, were reminded that they were sources and symbols of great evil and so the idea that evil would come from the sea wouldn't, wouldn't be surprising to the Hebrew. And so what I want you to see there is that, again, this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is an apocalypse. That's the genre of literature that it is. And an apocalypse is something that reveals the truth for what it is, right? It tells us a story that pulls the curtain back on all that we think to be true and shows us what is actually going on behind the scenes. And so John, as he's describing this drag and the beast who follows the dragon here in chapter 13, he describes it borrowing all the way back to these ancient ideas of evil so that we might understand all that the world has ever thought of as evil is right here. I'm about to reveal it to you in this story, John is basically saying. Or, or the messenger to whom that John is, is giving that is giving this message to John, is speaking this truth. All that is evil is about to be revealed. What is behind all that is evil is about to be revealed. <clears throat> we see other symbols of ancient evil. If you're a student of the book of Daniel uh, and the creatures that are listed in Daniel's prophecy of judgment to come, you will notice that a lot of the creatures that are mentioned in Daniel are kind of pushed up together into one creature here in this beast uh, the, uh, with all the different animals that he uses. Uh, and, and in Daniel, those were most likely prophecies about kings to come between the time of Daniel and the coming of Jesus. Uh, but it also just, again, is speaking towards the evil working behind the scenes in all times, in all things, once again, about to be revealed here within this beast and the dragon whom he follows. And this isn't just like fake power. Once again, evil has real power in the world. 
We see that with the seven heads and the ten horns. Those are symbolic of power, both the numbers and the idea of these heads and horns uh, bearing these, uh, these words of power, these words of blasphemy. And we see within not only the power, the copycat already happening. Uh, seven was a heavenly number. It was divine perfection. Uh, and so for the beast himself to have seven heads uh, was showing that this beast was trying to be like divinity, was trying to be like God. And as we follow on further, we feel we see very clearly not just trying to be like God, but trying to be like Jesus himself. Because there is a head that appeared to have a mortal wound, but was healed, was brought back. In the same way that Jesus who died and then came back, appeared to have a mortal wound, but then was resurrected from the grave. But in Jesus' case, it wasn't the appearance of a mortal wound. It was actually a wound unto death, from which Jesus was then rescued by the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we already see this copycat thing happening. And this beast is the one that is commonly called the Antichrist for that reason and that he copies the ways of Jesus poorly, but in a way effectively enough to where much of the world is tricked into following him, is tricked into believing him, is tricked even into believing that he is of God and is good and righteous and therefore should be followed. Now, I've talked throughout this series about being careful about not getting lost in the weeds. Revelation 13 could be the most... Revelation 13 could be the most notorious passage for getting caught in the weeds because we can very easily turn this into a historical whodunit, who is it kind of argument where we try to figure out who is the Antichrist, who represents the 666 that we're going to see in the back half of the chapter, who are all of these things. And for every generation, there has been a different answer to that question, right? For much of our grandparents' generation, the greatest generation, those alive during World War II, Hitler was the prom candidate, uh, before he committed suicide, of course, was the prom candidate to be the Antichrist. And then since then, just about every, uh, not just about, I would, I would say that if you went on Google, you could find that every single president in the last 20, 30, 40 years has been by some group of people considered to be the Antichrist. Everybody assumes that, right, and agrees with that. And, and whether or not, it depends on if you voted for him or not, right? If you voted for the guy, he is, he, he is everything that we hope for to be. If you didn't vote for the guy, well, he's the Antichrist. He's going to bring about the end of time, and that's the only reason why God allowed him to take office in the first place, right? It's just simple math. Uh, and so that's what a lot of people do when we have this conversation about the Antichrist. And you can find, again, you can find anything. You can find even some of the stuff here can be twisted into, well, this person was the Antichrist. For instance, Ronald Reagan, who was shot, bare a mortal wound, and was healed. Many thought that that was an indication that he was this Antichrist. Now, most of us in this part of the world are fans of Reagan and Reaganomics and all those sorts of things. And so we wouldn't be the ones to say that, or people around us wouldn't be the ones to say that. But in certain parts of the world, that's the way things were. And then you could take all of these little different prophecies and you can pin them on different people. Again, in my lifetime, I have heard that George W. Bush, that the Clintons, uh, that uh, Obama, uh, that Biden, that Trump have all at some point been nominated for the Antichrist, um, <clears throat> most likely to destroy the world, you know, in their yearbook or whatever. Um, 
I don't know if that's the case or not. Like, I don't know who that final person is going to be. I don't think it's any of those guys for some reasons we could talk about at a different time. Uh, One being that the whole world will follow them according to Revelation 13, uh, that it's not just going to be half of one country that really likes them. It's going to be much of the whole world that gets behind them. Uh, This is going to be someone who has far-reaching impact. But that's beside the point, right? We're missing the point if we go down that rabbit trail. What we see is that this spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well in the world. That's what I want you to see this morning. John is really the only writer in the New Testament to even use the word or talk about the idea of the Antichrist. And in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, he says something rather interesting. In 1 John 4, 3, John writes to the, one of the churches that he helped get started. He tells them, the spirit of the Antichrist is to come and indeed is already here, basically, is what he says. I'm not quoting that verbatim. You can look that up on your own. It's 1 John 4, 3. But he says that the spirit of the Antichrist is already among you, already here. The spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. Put that in your head and we'll save it until we get to the end. The evil of the beast is blasphemy. Pretending to be God when he's not God. Pretending to be Christ when he's not and therefore blaspheming against Christ. Making war against the saints, even conquering the saints. But only for 42 months. Here's that idea of three and a half years that keeps popping up again and again in Revelation that also pops up again and again in the book of Daniel. Uh, This is perhaps a distinct period of tribulation that is to come, but also indicative of the reality that God allows this to happen according to his good and perfect plan, and that God sets limits to what the beast and the dragon can do, that they're not able to just do whatever they want to. No, at the end of 42 months, their time is up. It is a limited period of reign. Yes, evil is powerful. Yes, evil is destructive, but evil has its limits. God has set the boundaries, and they will not pass that boundary. Once their time comes, their time comes, that's the end of the story. And they are to rule over, the beast is with the power of the dragon imbued in him, to rule over all people whose names have not been recorded before the foundations of the world in the Lamb's book of life. And the job of the saints that we saw kind of poetically talked about there in verse 10 is to endure, that there will come a time when the anti-Christian kingdom will mean persecution for those who follow Christ, will we endure through it? There will come a time when we will be slain with the sword, we will be taken into captivity. Will we endure through that? Verse, the end of verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. For all people throughout all times who have endured persecution, will we endure through that is the question raised. <clears throat> and then... In verses 11 through 18, we see the second half of chapter 13. We see the second beast. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. <clears throat> Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. As the Leviathan was alluded to with the first beast, with the other ancient beast that is alluded to in Job chapter 40 is the behemoth Kind of again representing an ancient evil perhaps alluded to here as the great evil that comes from the earth rather than the sea. And once again, we see the copycat nature of the second beast in that it looks like a lamb. It has two horns like a lamb, but it sounds like a dragon. It's exercising the authority of the first beast, causing the world to worship the first beast. Again, reminding us again, this is an important fact because John says it several times, whose mortal wound was healed. Again, showing us that it is all a poor imitation of what Jesus has done. And that this particular beast is often called the false prophet by many people. This particular beast creates great signs even fire falling from heaven. Once again, a poor substitute for what God does in Scripture through his Spirit. It is Elijah who calls out to God on Mount Carmel with the battle of the gods and fire falls from heaven to consume uh, the sacrifice that Elijah has put together to show that he is the one true God and not Baal. It is also much more adjacent to this scripture when in, in, in Acts chapter 2 when there are tongues of fire upon the apostles as they speak in, in, in a way and in a tongue that no one has ever heard before and that all kinds of people hear the gospel in their native tongue and become followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. In this second beast then it's almost like we see a poor imitation of the Holy Spirit the one who creates signs and wonders, the one who works in the world today, the one who was sent by the second beast, the one who was sent by Jesus himself. The Holy Spirit is one who proceeded from Jesus, also from the Father, but also from Jesus. And so when you have the dragon, who would kind of be the boss of these two beasts, right? The one who dwells in hell and who operates, who, who pulls all of the strings and makes this whole thing work. And then you have the first beast, who would be the Antichrist, the one who appeared to be like Christ because he had a mortal wound that was healed. And then you have this second beast, who was kind of a spokesperson for the first beast, who created all these signs and wonders. What you then have set up in chapters 12 and 13 is like an unholy anti-trinity. Once again, trying to copy the ways of God. One thing I hope you notice in this, and I meant to point this out in the first service and forgot, but it's a powerful truth, I think. One thing that I hope you notice in this is that Satan is not very creative, right? Uh, we learn in, uh, in, in the Old Testament, we learn that there is nothing new under the sun, 
There's nothing new in this world. There's, oh, God has created everything that is new and fresh. And the only time we're going to get to experience true newness and freshness again is in heaven. Where in Revelation uh, 21 and 22, we see God creating things anew. And we see in Revelation 21.5, one of my favorite scriptures where Jesus says to John, when he is remaking the new heaven and the new earth, behold, I make all things new. Until that day, there's not going to be anything truly new new, truly creative. And Satan is so bad at creativity because that's God's thing, not Satan. God is the one who created everything out of nothing. God is the one who put his thumbprint on all of us when he created us out of the dust of the earth and breathed the air of life into our being. God is the one who created, not Satan. And Satan stinks at it so much that the best option he has is to try to copy what God has already done. Don't you see the way it works in Revelation 12 and 13? It's like the dragon decided, I couldn't get the woman. I couldn't get the child. And so now I have to do something to try to war against those who would descend from them, the church themselves, you and I, the saints of God at work in the great commission of God that we have all been called to. And his response is, I've got to do something to stop them. What can I do but imitate what I've already seen? If I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. And it's a poor imitation. It's terrible. But because people don't know the original thing well enough, they fall for Satan's tricks because they don't know the original thing. They fall for the counterfeit. And that's what we see happen to a mass degree at the end. When I do believe there will be some actual central character that comes in and leads the forces of evil that is used as a pawn by Satan to bring about everything that will happen at the end. But I believe we also see in some degree throughout human history and even today. That's why I would say Adolf Hitler was not the Antichrist, but I believe that he was an Antichrist that he went about preaching a message to the German people and to all who would follow him of a new way of life, a new way of life that would be perfect and they could reach this Nirvana-like experience if they would just follow him and do everything that he said to do. And oh yeah, by the way, that includes brutally murdering six million people along the way. We're just gonna forget that little part. When you look back and you see history and you see what was done in the name of the great experiment in the, in the Nazi's name and Adolf Hitler's name, you would say, how in the world would someone fall for this? But if you go back and you look at the Nuremberg trials and some of the other times when people were interviewed and they were asked, why did you commit such atrocities? What did they say? I was just following orders. I was just doing what I was told to do. They didn't know the truth well enough to know when a great lie was being told to them. And this ought to cause us a moment of pause at least, if not one of great concern, because it happens over and over and over again in society where people are tricked by a great lie, not because the great lie is awesome, but because they do not know the truth. And that's when it's easiest to fall for the truth, fall for a lie, is when you don't know the truth. For instance, Man, I hate that we get so caught up in guessing who is the Antichrist, that we miss the fact that the spirit of the Antichrist is always at work around us, that the spirit of falsehood and false teaching is always at work around us. Let's take the number 666. When I was a high school kid after a football game one night, we went to Sweetwater to the Whataburger because that was the only place that was open after our game. And I waited in line and I got a double Whataburger with cheese, the value meal. 
tell you how long ago it was. It was $6.66. I don't know what it would be today, uh, but that with the, the, the you know, large Coke and large fry and all that, that's what it ended up being. And the waitress, the person behind the cash register would not take my order. She refused to take my order because 666, this number was some sort of like, you know, bad spiritual mojo. And so she made her manager come and take my order. And then my buddy behind me, who I don't know if he was just wanting to be a jerk or he wanted the same thing I did, ordered the same exact thing and she did the whole thing again. But that's that kind of thing, right? Like, you know, if you, I don't, a lot of people don't write checks anymore. We don't do that much. But, you know, if you had a checkbook and you got to the 666th check, what do you do with that check? You just wad it up and throw it away, right? Because it's bad mojo. Or maybe you're one of those really gutsy people and you write somebody a check for $6.66. No, you wouldn't do that, right? Nobody would do that because that is just all, wanting all of this bad mojo to come upon you and we turn it into this mystical, magical number. If you're reading a book like War and Peace or something that's like a thousand pages long and you come to 666, there's nothing bad luckish about that page. It's just a page with a number on it. John is pointing us to something much more important. But John is very clear on this one, right? This isn't one of those symbols that he just passes over real quickly. It's like he's saying, hey, this one is big. This one's important. This number actually does mean something. And so scholars have long debated over what exactly does this number mean? Some think that because seven is the number of perfection. And so you put three sevens together, that would be like ultimate perfection. That six is the number therefore for imperfection, one short of perfection. And so if you have three sixes together, that is a complete imperfection, complete falling short. And those scholars would argue that in the Greek, it should be read not the number of a man, but the number of man in general. Take the indefinite article out, that it is man's number. And so it is indicative of everything that man lies his hands to. Uh, okay, maybe. But another one, and this was the one that I tend to believe, could be wrong. Okay, this is not gospel truth. Uh, this is the one that I tend to believe, uh, is that John is employing uh, a practice known as gematria, uh, which is where you take uh, letters and you assign numerical values to them, okay? And, and what he's doing is he's taking the words Caesar Nero, who would have been the emperor at the time or shortly before these words are written, who was known for all kinds of evil. Uh, you know the, the story, the, the cliche of Nero is that while Rome was burning, he was playing his fiddle, right? He was also brutal to Christians and many other people, even his own family, because he was afraid that they were going to take power from him, murdering some of them. And so if Caesar Nero, if you translate that into Hebrew and then you assign a numerical value to each letter, each consonant, because there's no vowels in Hebrew, it adds up to 666. Now, again, you don't want to get lost too much in that because a lot of people have done that with a lot of different names over time. But Caesar Nero makes sense for a couple of other reasons. One, he is a contemporary of John's. He is the leader of the world as far as John is concerned as far as the people in John's world are concerned. He is the Roman emperor. And not, he is not just a political leader. He, because he is the emperor of Rome, is seen as a spiritual leader. Nero committed suicide in AD 68 or something like that. But there were a group of people who believed that because he was divine, that he would one day return from the dead. So he would have a mortal wound and then return and that he would actually come from the east. There's a lot about that in scripture as well. We can get into that some of the time. But that is what some people believed about Nero. So he was celebrated as this kind of God. But he was also seen as all that kind of encompasses what Rome was about. All that was wrong with the material world. 
All that was wrong with this world that had turned its back on God and God's ways and pursued material wealth, pursued power, pursued all the things that are not of God instead. And so it's as if, it's not as if John is saying, Nero's going to come back someday and he's going to be the final antichrist. What I believe John is saying is that Nero, who by the way, one of his nicknames was the beast uh, in, in when he was ruling. And so this Nero character is John is basically saying, this guy is the type of individual that I'm talking about. He represents a type of ruler. He represents a type of being, a type of human, a type of leader that is opposed and antithetical to everything that is of God. And we see that happen again over and over again in Scripture, whether it's actual people or it's systems uh, or it's governments, whatever it might be, that there are large amounts of people who are led astray by a system, by a person, by a government to do terrible things, even though they think what they are doing is right. Nero kind of represents that type, if you will. And so the job of the saints <clears throat> in a world in which the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist exists is to use wisdom to discern what is good and true and what is evil and false. Utilize wisdom. Friends, this was important in John's day. 80, 70, 90, whenever this was written. It is also very important in 2022 for us to know the difference between lies and truth. Just because something looks good or even Christian doesn't mean it isn't evil. Satan has always been very good, at least from a human perspective, at disguising himself as an agent of light, an agent of that which is good. But if you pay close attention, you'll see through it. The first beast, yes, he had a wound that was healed, but he also utters blasphemies. If you listen to him, you'll hear the blasphemy. The second beast, yes, he looked like a lamb, but his voice sounded like the dragon's. If you listen to him, you'll know what he's saying. You'll hear the falsehood and what he is saying. We must always be on the lookout for the lies of Satan. They exist both in the culture and in the church. And so the question would be, how do we resist how do we resist false teaching? How do we resist falsehood? How do we resist giving in to this spirit of the Antichrist? With the first beast, it is those whose names were not written down in the Lamb's book of life who, who are overcome. For those of you who truly believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ, who truly believe that Jesus is God's son and you confess him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. Scripture tells us that. For those of you who have made that confession and hold fast, that ought to tell you, you are not among the lot that the beast can convince, that the beast can trick. One of the great mistakes we make about the Antichrist and specifically the mark of the beast is that we act like it can happen by accident, right? Like, oh, hey, 
Here's the, the, the big spoiler in all time. The mark of the beast is really your iPhone. I'm sorry. All of you who have one are out as long as you carry one because, you know, well, you can make sense of that, right? I got to have this in order to buy food and, and do all the things I need to do in the modern world. And if I don't have one, if I don't have a smartphone, can I really, can I really operate in the world? Can I buy stuff on Amazon? Can I get H-E-B to deliver me food? Can I do all of those things? And so you can manipulate it to say that and say, oops. Like God's going to do that to us, where you get to the point at the end, like, oops, you were accidentally following the Antichrist. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, okay? What we're seeing in the, the, the having of the mark upon them is people who made a choice. You don't get a tattoo on your hand and on your forehead by accident. You decided to do that. You decided to follow the ways of falsehood. Yeah, you might get tricked, but it's not going to be some, like, technicality. Okay, it's not going to be something at the end of, or, I mean, let's just be real. Everybody's thinking it, right? It's not going to be the vaccine, or it's not going to be this, or it's not going to be that. It's not going to be, you know, whether you are on this political party or that political party, what car you're carrying. It's not going to be any of that junk. It is because you decided to turn your back on the truth and to follow after lies. That's when you're going to bear the mark of the beast. Because in Revelation 7, we learn very quickly that the Holy Spirit has already come, Jesus has already come, to seal those who are saved by his blood. And if you bear that seal upon yourself, you're not going to get that washed off and the beast mark printed over it. No, the seal of God is upon you and you cannot be unsealed. So let us not be fearful when we read these words, but let us rather be have a sense of urgency so that others don't bear that mark but bear the mark of the one true God, the one true Savior. And how do we do that? How do we resist? We know the truth. I'm about to lose my voice, so I don't have much time left. I'm going to try to wrap this up. But we know the truth. That is what matters. And so if you want a resolution for 2022, be resolved, church, to know the truth so that you might not fall for the lies, no matter how tempting they are. Be ye resolved to know Christ better every day, to know his word better every day, so that when lies come your direction, you can say, that's a stupid lie. I know the truth. May we be a people who know and celebrate the truth of Jesus Christ because the truth is wonderful, but also to protect ourselves against the lie because you better believe that the lie is readily available to you today. And if you don't know the truth, you're gonna fall for the lie. You ask anybody who's ever done any kind of counterfeit, anti-counterfeit work, <clears throat> the best way to know that a counterfeit is a counterfeit is to know what the original is supposed to look like. And if you know what the original is supposed to look like, it doesn't matter how the counterfeit shows up, you're gonna know that it's the counterfeit. That's why we don't need to waste our time. Who is the Antichrist? Who's gonna be the one? Who, you know, what, what secret technology is gonna be the mark of the beast? Set your mind to knowing the truth of God and you will avoid falsehood and lies because the truth is who you are following. The truth is this word. The truth is a person. His name is Jesus and it is only through him that we are to find our way to the Father. And if we find our way to the Father and are sealed by the Holy Spirit in him, we will not be unsealed. We will be secure until the day comes when he calls us home in glory. And until then, you and I who are sealed can waste every single amount of energy and breath that we have in telling other people the truth so that they might not fall for the lie. 
The truth is Jesus. The truth is his word. Know it. You will be safe and others might be safe through your testimony. During our time of invitation this morning, what is God asking you to commit yourself to when it comes to his truth? That's the question I'm gonna leave to you. I'm down here to pray with you this morning. If you wanna pray about this or anything else, the altar is open if you'd like to kneel and pray there. You can pray with somebody where you're at. You can pray by yourself, however God is leading. But let's stand together. I'm gonna pray for us briefly. The band is gonna lead us in one last song. And as they do, would you follow God in however he's calling? Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your spirit here with us, for the truth that you give us in your word and in the person of your son, Jesus. God, may you empower us through the truth of your word to see that which is false, to flee and run from it and hold fast to you and you alone. And God, in a world full of lies, may we courageously stand up for the truth. And God, may you be a beacon of truth through us so that other people will not fall for the lie, but instead rest in your truth. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.